Um, Father God, we just humbly come before you, um, just wanting you to equip us to be faithful to the, the commission to go out and, and make disciples of all, all nations. Father, we recognize part of that is, is answering the questions and the objections people might have. And so I just pray today you might open our minds to be ready and prepared to answer the questions our friends might have. Not only having the best answers, but be able to answer them in a way that represents you, to answer them with love. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. So the name of our um, seminar series is Reasons for Hope. Yesterday we had an introduction talking about the relationship between faith and reason. And today we're getting into faith and science. And then as we go throughout the week, we'll continue to talk about faith and history, faith and suffering. And then on Friday we'll talk about faith and questions. And have some time for an extended Q&A. Uh, yesterday, if you were here, we um, talked about the name for the seminar, Reasons for Hope, comes from this mandate from Peter, where in 1 Peter chapter 3, he tells us that one of the ways we honor Christ as Lord is by always being prepared to give a defense, give a reason, give an apologia to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And so for us coming together right now and thinking about these things, and as you continue to in your time, you're fulfilling this command of Scripture to prepare yourself to be able to give a defense or an answer to someone to ask you about the reason for the hope that's in you. But we also talked yesterday about how when Peter tells us this, he also gives us some counsel on what our approach is to be. So he, cont he continues in 1 Peter chapter 3, in verses 15 and 16, tell us that when we do this, we should do it with gentleness, with respect, with a good conscience, and exhibiting good behavior. And we spent quite a bit of time yesterday talking about why it's so important that this is our approach when we engage with these questions. We want to respect other people because that's the only way to have a productive conversation, productive dialogue, right? Um, if you're just trying to overpower them or trying to strongman them, they won't be really um, receptive. Um, the need for gentleness in our tone and our approach, the need to be living out what we're talking about, our good behavior and the importance of that. And so um, good conscience, we want to make sure we're using only the strongest and the best arguments. We're not be, um, being dishonest in any way. And so that was yesterday, we discussed that quite a bit. We looked at this quote from um, Ministry of Healing that said, the strongest argument for the gospel isn't any intellectual argument that we might give. These are good, but the strongest one is a loving and lovable Christian. And so ultimately, we wouldn't be living that out. As we live that out, though, we do want to be prepared to answer specific questions that come up. And so what I want us to do today is focus on science. And I want to begin by introducing some of this tension you've probably felt between faith and science. So here are a couple of memes, some internet memes that, that exhibit this. Here's one. It says, science is different to all the other systems of thought because you don't need faith in it. You can check that it works. So here's one idea. You don't need faith in science. You can just check it. But somehow science is better than faith. Here's another meme that kind of exhibits the tension. It says, religion gave us the dark ages. Science gave us the space age. And here's a pretty cool photo of the earth from the moon trying to make the point, look, that science got us to the moon, not religion. Here's another one. If you have questions about the nature of the universe, uh, the religious approach is you pray for it, and the assumption is, you know, you, you don't get any answer. But in science, you can go out and you can build the 17-mile-long, $55 billion machine, the, the particle accelerator at CERN, and we can investigate. And so it's, it's trying to draw a contrast between investigation and, and, and critical thought from um, just praying and not getting a response. Uh, here's one more. Without science, progress would be impossible. Without religion, progress would be unstoppable. 
And so it's saying that science is the source of progress and uh, religion is, is constantly holding it back. Have any of you ever felt this tension at all? Or has any, heard anyone characterize this tension in a similar way? Or what are some of the um, ways that you've heard it characterized? Okay, particularly on the topic of creation. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? Have you ever heard of a tension between faith and science? Has someone expressed the two at odds with each other? The idea that the modern idea that science has replaced our need for God. Uh huh. So science has replaced our need for God. That before, God. when there was something like lightning, you were like God did it, but now we know better. And so since we know better, we can explain scientifically what happened. So we don't need to appeal to God or God, we don't need the idea of Zeus or anything like that. I've heard people say that science or that religion is a crutch. Religion's a crutch. Yeah. Like um, it's a nice way to make you feel good emotionally, but there's nothing true behind it. Okay? Anyone else? Probably seen in some form, either you know, online or talking with friends, this tension. Uh, what I want to do is suggest that if we look historically and we look at just the, the intellectual foundations of science, that's actually a very different story. Instead of there being an inherent tension or conflict, uh, Christianity provides actually a rich basis for science. And so what I want to do, oh, here's one more, one more meme. Um, here they define science as science is God's way of telling you he does not exist. So a little bit tongue in cheek there. Okay, well, let's, um, let's see if that's true. All of these expressions of science kind of have this idea behind it that science is a superior type of knowledge or maybe the only kind of legitimate knowledge. So the logician Bertrand Russell um, expressed this idea well. 20th century, he wrote, whatever knowledge is attainable must be attainable by scientific methods. And what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. So Russell was arguing that the only kind of true knowledge is the knowledge from science and everything else, especially religion or faith or all these other kinds where we think of as knowledge isn't really true knowledge. What's your reaction to Russell's statement? <laughs> why, why is it funny? Because that's a knowledge claim. Good. So Russell himself is claiming to know something and Russell's claiming to know that the only type of knowledge we can have is scientific knowledge, right? So Russell says, okay, let me tell you something. We can only have scientific knowledge. But then your response to Russell should be, well, how do you know that? Is that can you test that? That's right. That's not a scientific claim. So he's making an extra scientific claim. He's saying the only kind of true knowledge there is is scientific knowledge, but this is a philosophical claim, not a scientific claim. So if he really believed the only kind of true knowledge there was was scientific knowledge, well, he wouldn't be able to believe it because it undermines itself. Were you going to add to that? Yeah. Uh, sort of maybe along the same vein. I want to know if he can scientifically demonstrate that he likes his pipe. <laughs> That's a fantastic picture of him smoking a pipe. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the point being like, he can't prove that he likes it. I see. He could smoke it in front of us. I see. But he might just be faking it but I'm sure he knows that he likes it. Ah, so you point to there's lots of other kinds of knowledge we have. Um, maybe aesthetics you peel into here, or some kind of uh, knowledge of preferences. Um, there's ethical knowledge. There's knowledge of history. There's knowledge of uh, the whole university outside of the science department has knowledge, right? And so we can't say that science is the only type of knowledge. Yeah, and, and by making these claims, 
you're smuggling in a philosophical claim, right? So there's secretly a philosophical claim going on, but it can't support itself. The claim is that only science, we should only trust science, but you're stating this as a philosophical claim. And so already we see there's some problems with this worldview. What I want to do is, is argue for the next few minutes that at the bottom of science, powering science, are philosophical foundations. So let me try and make this point. Um, the first foundation of science, we can't do science unless you have this philosophical belief that the universe is intelligible. It's called the intelligibility of the universe. So Einstein, he was amazed by this fact. He put it this way, he said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. So maybe you think it's like obvious to us now that, oh yeah, you know, if we study long enough, you can learn how the world works, right? Like if I sit down and, you know, do some experiments or read some science books, I can learn how the world works. But like take yourself out of like, you know, growing up going to science classes every year and just think like, well, why is it that we're able to understand why the world works? This is like a, a, a really interesting problem, right? If you're like a dog in a library, a dog has no knowledge of like what the books in the library say, has no understanding of what those books say. So why should it be that we have some ability to actually understand the world around us? But the assumption that we can understand the world is a philosophical assumption at the heart of science. We wouldn't go out and do science if we didn't believe that the world was intelligible, that we could make sense of it. Does that make sense? Great, so, so that we, even when we go out and we do science, we're, we're, making, we're expressing some kind of faith commitment that we actually believe that we can make sense of the world. There's no experiment you can do that will tell you this because the experiments are assuming this. So what's really surprising about this view is it's not very clear how naturalism would support it. The belief that we're merely the result of some natural process with no guide, no order, no intentionality. So Francis Crick points this out well. Uh, Francis Crick argues, our highly developed brains, under the uh, naturalistic narrative, they were not evolved under the pressure of discovering scientific truths, but only to enable us to be clever enough to survive. So under the, the story of naturalism, that, that we are being developed by survival of the fittest, it would make sense why we're really good at like finding food and maybe finding a spouse and passing our genes. But why should we trust our brains to find scientific truths? Why should we trust you know, the, our ability to do calculus or our ability to do physics and describe some you know, black hole or anything like this? So um, Francis Crick's observation, it's a callback to what we looked at yesterday. Remember the statement of Darwin yesterday? Where we looked yesterday, Darwin had this, he said, the horrid doubt always occurs in my mind that why should I trust my mind at all, right? If we had merely evolved from the lower species. Why should I trust my mind any more than I trust the mind of uh, some monkey? So D Darwin himself recognizes doubt, and more lately a number of people articulated it. So the intelligibility of the universe is a philosophical foundation of the heart of science that seems really tough to support under a purely naturalistic worldview, right? What's going to justify our assumption that we can make sense of the world and we can trust our thinking about it? C.S. Lewis notes that historically, the reason we had this confidence came out of Christian faith. He put it this way. Men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in lawgiver. 
So the reason people thought that they could go out and find some law that described the universe was because they believed in a lawgiver that had ordered and structured the universe. And independent from that belief, you didn't have, in other societies that didn't have this uh, philosophical foundation of the Christian commitment to a God who had ordered the universe, there wasn't the same kind of development of modern science as there was in Europe. And so he's arguing that historically, it was the Christian conviction of a God who had ordered the universe that gave rise to the development of modern science. There's one other, and we'll develop this a little bit more in a few minutes, we'll look at some of that history and see exactly how that happened. But there's one other assumption that science relies upon, and that's that not only can we understand the world, but that mathematics, this is why I get really excited, right? Mathematics is the language with which we can describe the universe. So let me try and make this point by showing you a couple strings of numbers. My question is, I was looking at each of these strings, which ones have order and which ones are random? Which ones have some kind of mathematical structure to them and which ones do you say are merely random that have no structure at all? So the first string, would you say that's random or there's some structure to it? What's the structure of this first string? Yeah, it's just five, 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 five. So it's really easy to describe this. You could say it's just five repeated a bunch of times. Right, there's a very short, elegant, simple description of that string. How about the next one? Yeah, the next string is ordered or random? Ordered. Yeah, it seems to be uh, ordered. It's just one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Again, a very, maybe a little more complicated than the previous one, but still a very simple description, one, two, three, repeated. The next string? Order. What's the order you see? Even ah, good, it's even numbers. There's a two, four, six, eight, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20. And so there's a simple order to that one as well. Great, so this is a measure. Um, so uh, this is one way that we measure the complexity of strings is we ask, is there a nice simple description of that string? How about the next one? <laughs> the next string is eight, two, three, five, nine, eight, six, six, two, five, nine, six. Seven three nine three 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 zero five nine five seven seven four and so on. It doesn't seem like you can, you can think about it. I was just randomly hitting my keyboard when I when I did this, so there probably isn't. But um, you know, it doesn't seem like there's too much order to this one. And you know, there are various ways that we can try and make this precise. But what we would say is we would say that a number is random. This is this is a notion of randomness that was introduced by a mathematician by the name of Kolmogorov. But he said, we call a number random if you can't describe it by a shorter string. If you can describe it by a nice short string, then it has some nice order to it. But we call it random if there is no short description. Does that make sense? Is that a fair definition of randomness? Okay. So what does that have to do with the universe? Well, if you didn't know anything about the universe, you might just ask, well, what is it? Is there going to be a nice short description of all the physical behaviors in the universe? Or is it like this last string where every physical interaction is just like totally different every time, right? The thing we know about strings is we're able to analyze this notion of complexity and randomness and we're able to show that the vast majority of strings, nearly all of them, are random. So if you pick just an arbitrary string of numbers, it will almost always be random. You won't be able to describe it by a shorter string. So it might seem like if you're thinking about universes, if you're given a random universe, right, 
you wouldn't expect there to be some nice short description of the physical interactions within it. Does that idea make sense? Right, just like if you're given a random string, why should you be able to describe it with a nice short? Sometimes you get lucky, but you know, the vast majority of time you expect not to have that. So the very fact that we go out and we discover things like force equals mass times acceleration, or you know, some law of gravity, or, or these nice, elegant, simple mathematical descriptions that describe a whole range of activity all over the universe, is evidence that there's some deep structure to the universe. So that already is a really surprising fact, right? Like, like why is there order to the universe? That's really surprising. Are you surprised? I hope I made you surprised. I think like, it's tough for us to appreciate this because we grow up so much embedded with the idea that there's order to the world, but actually if you step, step back and think about it, like, like given an arbitrary universe, it's not clear why there should be order to it, right? But so the first surprise is that there is some kind of order and structure to the universe. Just like if you're given a random string of numbers, it's pretty surprising when you have a nice uh, repeating pattern. But the second surprise is that mathematics is the language that describes this order. And so let me, let me show you why this is so cool. I'm going to show you three of my favorite mathematical constants. Here's where I'm really going to geek out. The first one is E. So E is 2.718281828, and it's, a, it's an irrational number, it keeps going on. Uh, e, what, what is E? Uh, e shows up in the calculus, it's really significant. It's how we study rates of change. Really, really big deal in calculus. Uh, how about this one, I? Have you guys seen I? This one, math got weird, right? I is the square root of negative one. You're like, I thought regular numbers are hard enough, now we have imaginary numbers. This seems like mathematicians are just making things up and playing games but it's a way for us to solve things like, you know, if x squared is negative one, what squared can be negative one? Well, you can't do it with a negative number or a positive number, so you have to make up these imaginary numbers, right? And then this pi, pi seems pretty natural, it comes out of the uh, circumference and the diameter, you look at the ratio between these things in any circle, you get out pi, so pi 3.14159265358979323846264338327 and on and on and on and on, right? <laughs> So we have these really cool like, like mathematical constants and, and some of them seem like pi, like it's kind of natural, it comes out of circles. E is a little bit more complicated. It's related to this idea of the infinite in a really um, interesting way. And then there's I, and so there's I seems like it's just totally made up and imaginary. But they're all coming from like these different domains of math, right? But then what happens is as we keep doing math, we discover they all fit together. So this is the most beautiful mathematical equation. E to the power of i times pi plus one is zero. It just puts them all together. It's like, whoa, what just happened? All these numbers fit together. It's like, what's going on here with mathematics? So uh, the um, physicist by the name of Wigner, Eugene Wigner in the 20th century, he reflected on this mystery. So he points out that a mathematician, you know, fully, almost ruthlessly, exploits the domain of permissible reasoning and skirts the impermissible. He says, we're doing things like coming up with pi and thinking about infinity and coming up with e and then making up imaginary numbers, like how is that even allowed? We're doing all these crazy things. And he says, the fact that this recklessness does not lead him into a morass of contradictions is a miracle in itself. Why is it when we come up with this stuff that doesn't lead to contradictions but instead gives you these beautiful results where they all fit together? And then he comments, Eugene Wigner says, certainly it's hard to believe that our reasoning power was brought 
by Darwin's process of natural selection to the perfection which it seems to possess. So what Wigner is saying is the fact that we're so good at thinking that we're able to come up with this stuff and it all fits together, instead of getting contradictions, shows there's something really powerful about our minds. And it's not clear how a process that was simply looking for um, survivability, um, you know, selecting for the fittest, how that would give us that reason and power. So Eugene Vigno thought that this was a mystery. But that's not the only mystery. Vigno then goes on in this essay called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics and Natural Sciences to say, not only is that a mystery, the bigger mystery is then how these equations that come out of mathematicians in the basement thinking about numbers, I, for five years in grad school, it's in a basement with no windows, right? So I was like, just down there doing like math, not thinking about the world around me, just doing these little, you know, crazy math stuff, then goes on to describe the universe. So this identity of Euler, e to the i pi plus one is zero, is essential to doing modern physics. We can't do physics without it. We can't describe the universe without it. And what Eugene Wigner points out is often the mathematicians develop the math and then like a hundred years later, the physicists come along and they're like, oh, we need that math you made up just for fun to describe the universe around us. So Vigno's like, what is going on here where the mathematicians are in their basements, you know, playing with numbers, coming up with some insights. And then the physicists are like, oh, we need that to understand this, you know, new phenomenon, understand the subatomic reaction or whatever it may be. And Wigner says there's something deeply profound about the way in which our minds are able to think about mathematics and use mathematics then to describe the world around us. And so notice these are, this is science is relying upon this, this assumption that we have minds that can make sense of the universe, that can do mathematics, and that mathematics will be useful to describe the world around us. So the question I want us to ask is, is what explains this? And C.S. Lewis already started suggesting, and, and he was just going off the thesis of Whitehead and others, that historically what happened was it was the Christian conviction that God had given us minds that can reason that was the foundation that powered science. So let's look at some examples of that. Although when I tell you the story that Christianity was the foundation for science, you might think, well, that's not true. How about Galileo? You see, recognize this guy as Galileo? You might think, isn't the story of Galileo that Christianity was the force that was opposing science? Like Galileo was making discoveries about the world, and then the church comes along, and they're like, no, Galileo, you can't, you can't you know, publish that because it's against what we believe. And so oftentimes you think of, like, historically, maybe you think that the church was suppressing the scientific progress, like one of those memes were suggesting. But when you dig into the story of Galileo, we see more is going on here. So Galileo himself, notice, was himself acting as a Christian. Uh, he wrote that the Bible can never speak on truth whenever its true meaning is understood. So he had a high view of scripture. He didn't think that science and scripture were in conflict in any way. He didn't think that science and religion were in conflict. So what was going on with Galileo? Okay, some background. So Galileo is working within this medieval context. And what had happened was the medieval church had adopted the Aristotelian worldview to a large extent. So here was Aristotle's understanding of the world. The Greek philosopher Aristotle believed that the earth was at the center of the world, and then you had all these spheres around the earth. You had the moon and the Mercury and Venus, and they all followed their spheres, and there were seven different heavenly bodies you could see, and then there was the sphere of the stars, you could go further, and there's finally the sphere of the prime mover. 
Incidentally, this is where the names of the week come from. So like Monday is for like the moon, Sunday is for um, 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 the sun, you know, uh, Saturday is for Saturn and so forth. The names from the week come from the seven different objects you can see with the naked eye. And so Aristotle had this, this view of the earth was at the center and all these other objects are around it. And he had a story that went something like this. In the heavens, everything moved perfectly around. On earth, everything was kind of terrestrial and fell down. It was a little bit inferior to things in heaven. And when the you know, medieval church heard Aristotle's story, they're like, oh, that's a good story. We can integrate that with our theology. So there's an integration of Aristotle's theology with their, uh, inter- uh, Aristotle's philosophy with their theology. And so they integrated the two. And then that gave them credit because Aristotle was kind of a big deal. So if he's on your team, you know, you get points, right? And so they, they really want to integrate Aristotle because he was a big deal. And so they, they were able to get all the credibility from Aristotle. The problem is, although, you know, you have this nice sounding story of Aristotle, you know, when the astronomers came along, actually started looking at the sky, they're like, no, that actually doesn't agree with our findings. Okay, but what gave the astronomers permission to come along, start looking at the sky, and recognize that, hey, the story is a little bit different than what Aristotle had been telling us. It's interesting that the scientific revolution took place immediately after the Protestant Reformation. In the Protestant Reformation, you had Martin Luther and others coming along, and what they were doing is they were challenging some of the theological assumptions of the medieval worldview. So for instance, the medieval worldview had t- took Aristotelian ethics, which taught we become just by doing just acts, and integrated that into the theology. Martin Luther comes along, he's like, no, that's not what the book of Scripture says. The book of Scripture says that the just shall live by faith. And so he begins challenging that authority, the authority of the ancients, the authority of Aristotle, saying, no, instead of believing simply what the ancients said, we should look at the book of Scripture. Now, after that took place in the Protestant Reformation, you then had the scientific Um, revolution began, where individuals like Kepler, who called himself the Luther of astronomy, he saw himself as continuing this Protestant Reformation, what he said is, well, now let's go ahead and look at the book of nature and see what we can learn from the book of nature. So just like how the Protestant Reformation was looking at the book of scripture, the early um, scientists of of the modern scientific era said, let's look at God's second book, how God has revealed himself in nature, and not simply trust what the ancients had told us, but see how God has revealed himself. And then they began to develop you know, their new models. And so you have Kepler and, and others who began then to develop the models and are willing to go forward. And so the tension between the church and Galileo had nothing to do with the fact of you know, one having scripture and that suppressing science, but it was the fact that Galileo was challenging the philosophy that they had adopted from the world. Does that make sense? They had grabbed onto this Aristotelian philosophy and Galileo was challenging that. And so what was actually going on was in the scientific revolution, it was a continuation of the Protestant Reformation of saying, let's go back and look at the book itself, either the book of scripture for the reformers or for the scientific revolutionaries, the book of nature. Because they both recognize these are the books of God. So um, Peter Harrison, he's a um, historian of science at Oxford. He puts it this way. He said, had it not been for the rise of the literal interpretation of the Bible. So something else happened during the Protestant Reformation. Prior to the Protestant Reformation, it was very common to read Genesis in a metaphorical sense. And so there was all these allegorizing of the text. 
And the Protestant reformers said, no, when we read the text, we're going to try and read it according to its plain meaning. And it seems to be talking about God actually creating a material world. And so what it actually started doing was God created the physical world around us. So we should actually value and study the physical world God created. It's not just like a metaphor, an allegory. We should actually study the world God created because God created the physical, you know, material world around us. And so um, Peter Harrison points out that because of the rise of literal interpretation of the Bible, Bible in the Protestant Reformation, what had happened is he says the Bible and its literal interpretation have played a vital role in the development of Western science. He even argues that modern science may not have risen at all if it wasn't for what happened in the Protestant Reformation, of going back to Genesis and valuing Genesis and saying, hey, if the Bible begins with God creating and structuring the world around us, then we should go out and we should study it. And so he actually argues that it was the Protestant Reformation that paved the way for the scientific revolution. And that explains why you look at so many of the statements of the scientists, we'll look at in a second, so many of them call back and they talk about their faith in forming their science. What I want to show you really fast, though, is that the Genesis account is quite different from other creation accounts. There's a reason that it was the um, Genesis account of creation that promoted science rather than some of these other creation accounts. So in the creation account, you have the statement in Genesis that God creates humanity in his image, male and female, he blesses them and says to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. And so in that statement, you have a lot packed into there. Humanity is made in the image of God. And so in some sense, we, we, we have a mind, we can think, we're rational. We have this dominion or this permission to go out and interact with creation, understand the world around us. This was captured really well by Michelangelo in his picture of Adam and God. This is the creation of Adam. And I don't know, you've probably seen this picture before of God and, uh, touching out and reaching Adam. It's showing that humanity has this elevated place being made in the image of God. But what you maybe never noticed before, this was actually just pointed out a couple decades ago, pretty recently, is that God appears in the background of God. What does that look like? It's a brain. And so during this time, there was a rediscovery that human rationality was was, you know, this is God's gift to man, and we now have permission to use the brain God gave us to go out and study the world and make sense of it, right? So that's what the, the creation account is promoting us, to use our brains to study the world and make sense of it as those made in the image of God. I want to contrast that with another creation account. This is the Babylonian account. So the Babylonian account, you have Marduk, and what he does is he gets in a battle with another god. You can see him attacking this other god right here, Tamut. He kills Tamut, and he uses the, the you know, he just rips Tamut in half. One half becomes the earth. He makes the other half the sky. It's kind of brutal. It's kind of violent, right? He uses the blood of Tamut to make humanity. And then he describes humanity as a savage. A savage. Man shall be his name. The savage man I will create. So notice the difference. Rather than being made in the image of God, humanity is described as being savage. And then it says, his job, he'll be charged with service of the gods that they might be at ease. So humanity's whole purpose is just to serve the gods, so to please them, do whatever you can to please the gods, or else they'll be upset at you, rather than God giving humanity, uh, giving humanity dominion, asking man to step into a position of co-ruling the universe with him. You see that contrast? And so there was the high view of Christianity, the high view of humanity in the Judeo-Christian text that promoted this scientific exploration rather than the view that we are just savages out to serve the gods and make sure they're happy. So notice how this plays out. 
Um, during the Reformation, a number of reformers like uh, Martin Luther himself anticipated that there would be, following the Reformation, a time of scientific um, discovery. So uh, Martin Luther says this. He says, we're at the dawn of a new era. We're beginning to recover the knowledge of the eternal world that was lost through the fall of Adam. So, so Martin Luther had this sense that, hey, we're beginning to do something really exciting here. We're going to go back and discover all this knowledge that had been lost through the fall. And, and, and we're going to begin to make sense of it. He, he has a sense that because of what Christ has accomplished, we can now begin to re, reimagine our original purpose of participating in creation. So if you look at some of these statements of some of these early scientists, like I mentioned Kepler, notice the language they use. Kepler says, I wish I'd become a theologian. I had the intention of becoming a theologian. But now I see how God is, by my scientific endeavors, also glorified in astronomy. For the heavens declare the glory of God. And so they see their scientific work as an extension of or an outworking of the Christian faith. They're like, hey, my job as an astronomer, I'm studying the book of nature, just like how a theologian studies the book of scripture. So they don't see any tension there. Look at Newton. He says, when I write my treatise about a system, he's talking about his Mathematica Principia, this ma magnificent work where he, he derives the laws of motion, he gives a, a derivation of Kepler's laws, a really fantastic description of, of the world around us. He says, this is the reason I did this. He said, I had an eye upon such principles as might work with considering men for belief of a deity. I wrote it so thoughtful people might come to believe in God. And he says, nothing can rejoice me more than to find it useful for that purpose. So for Newton, his biggest joy was that his science was leading people to come to believe and consider seriously belief in God. Here's another one. Um, you may not be as familiar with this one, Maria Mitchell. She was the first female American astronomer. And so here's her observation, very similar to the others. She says, scientific investigations pushed on and on will reveal new ways in which God works and bring us deeper revelations of the holy unknown. So all these individuals are seeing their work as studying how God has worked throughout the universe. So I can continue to go multiply examples. I'll just do one more, a more contemporary example, Francis Collins. He was the head of the Human Genome Project that mapped the human genome. Uh, he also is currently the director for the National Institutes of Health. So he, he's done a lot of work with you know, genetics. And this is how he puts it. The God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. God can be found in the cathedral or in the laboratory by investigating God's majestic and awesome creation, science can actually be a means of worship. And so you have this history of top scientists and, and continuing even to today, where there are many who are saying that it is my faith that's compelling me to do my science, rather than the two living in tension of one of preventing the other. I want to suggest, though, it's not only the history of science, that, sci that Christianity provided a foundation for science, but what I want to do in the last few minutes is talk about how some modern scientific discoveries have also become, um, I might say, affirming of our faith. As the more we do science, the more we learn about the world, we say, that, hey, this world really fits well and is really made sense of by our Christian faith. So here's one such discovery. For the vast majority of human history, it was believed that the universe had always existed, that the universe always was, right? Uh, this makes sense because... If the universe had a beginning, then you had to ask the tough question about what caused it, right? But if you could avoid that question by saying, well, the universe just always has been. But over the last century, we've now, the scientific community has, has essentially come to consensus that there was a, a point of beginning, right? So this is the beginning of Hubble. Hubble was, um, did some observations that showed that the universe is expanding. 
And then if you run this um, story backwards, if the universe is expanding, you run that backwards, that means that there was some beginning or some origin of the universe. And so this, us living within this last century, this really privileged time of history, where we actually have really overwhelming scientific evidence, the universe had a beginning. Think of how well that fits with scripture, in particular, Genesis 1.1, right? The Bible begins with the affirmation that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so for now, we're living this privileged time where the first verse of Scripture, the opening words, in the beginning, seem to have been confirmed that the universe, in fact, had a beginning, right? For much of human history, people might have mocked Genesis 1-1 and said, of course there was no beginning. We know philosophically that's impossible for there to be a beginning. But now we actually have science has come to a place where it's affirming, oh, in fact, we did have a beginning to the universe. But it's not just that the universe begun to exist. It's that the universe has something that's called fine-tuning. There's a fine-tuning to the universe. So when we do physics, we come up with these laws of nature like I talked about, but oftentimes in the laws you'll see things like a, like a G or a gamma or an alpha or some variable. And what these variables are, these are constants of the laws of nature. So we have these constants. And so these are constants that aren't explained by anything. You know, you can't like figure out why this constant needs to be this way. There's nothing that seems to make these constants that they have to be the values that they're at. Rather, what you have to do is you have to go measure and see exactly what the constants are. So the best analogy I might think of is if you're baking a cake, you know, you have some like ingredients. And so you might have like two cups of sugar. And so you have like some sugar constant of like two cups, right? That's a lot of sugar. That's, that's probably not, that's too much for a cake, probably. One cup of sugar, right? Maybe, maybe two cups of, I don't know, flour. That's, you guys know how to bake cakes. And maybe two eggs or something. Okay. So these are, these are the constants of the cake. One, two, two, etc. And so there's nothing in here like, why should a cake have these constants and not some other constants? Well, you could try. You could imagine maybe you have other cakes that you could try to make with slightly different constants. Maybe in one egg, you, in one cake, you'd use three eggs instead of two eggs. Or you could try making a cake with like five cups of sugar and get diabetes or something, right? <laughs> but here's where we found out. We have all these really interesting constants, but when we go and we ask, well, what, a hap what would happen if the constants had been slightly different? So, for instance, there are these fundamental forces. There's the uh, weak and strong electromagnetic force. And there's this, uh, this strong nuclear force. And so we, we have different scenarios and we can you know, fluctuate the values a little bit. So this is what's going on in this graph right here. It's showing if we change the values a little bit, what happens? And well, if we make the electromagnetic force too strong, well, we can't get any of the heavy elements. There won't be any carbon, there won't be any complex elements. If, if we change the strong nuclear force too much, you, know, you can change it to a place where there's no chemical reactions at all. So no chemistry, right? there's no, no chemicals. And so what we see is, in each of these constants, when we look at it, there's only a very small range in which life is possible. In the sense that if you want to have chemistry, if you want to have any complex chemicals to store any kind of complex, not just human life, but anything that can have chemistry, anything that can store information and, and do interesting things with it, well, you're going to need some interesting chemistry, and you can only get that if these values are just right. There are other constants like gravity and the cosmological constant. And if these are just, you know, if you get these not to be the right value, then maybe the universe will expand too rapidly. And so we'll never get galaxies. Or the universe will collapse back upon itself. And so there'll be no universe at all. 
And so there are all these constants that have to be just right. And so over the last uh, handful of decades, the question has come up, well, okay, so why are these questions exactly, why are these constants exactly the way they should be? Fred Hoyle, he, um, not, not a Christian, he was uh, actually an outspoken, he was an outspoken critic of faith and atheist for quite a while. But he, he noted that when he began to study these, he's a well-known astronomer, he says that when I began to study this, he said, nothing has shaken my atheism as much as this discovery, this discovery of the fine-tuning of the universe. He goes on to explain, a common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a superintellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as the chemistry and the biology so that there are no blind forces we're thinking about in nature. It's like God has dialed these constants to be just right in order to allow life to exist. He says the numbers one calculates from the facts seems to be so overwhelming as to put this conclusion beyond question. And so I want to help demonstrate what Hoyle means by this. He offers a, an analogy to help us get a sense of how unlikely it is that all these constants would have just the right value. You know, there's so many of them, there's so many different ways they could have taken. Why is it that they are just the right values to allow for chemistry and ultimately for life? So I need two volunteers to demonstrate this. One, two, great. And, and I, I hope you consent to being blindfolded. Sure. So great. Okay, so here's the first volunteer. And so what Fred Hoyle says is, the way to see how unlikely this is, how incredibly unlikely this is, is imagine blindfolded individuals who are given the task, there you go, of solving a Rubik's Cube. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you one in your hand right here. Let me, let me mix up this other one. And you can just try and start solving it. Start going for it. Here you go. Because imagine them trying to solve this. Okay. How, li how surprised would you be if one of them solves it? You'd be pretty amazed. Well, you shouldn't be too amazed because there's only 43 quintillion possibilities for a Rubik's Cube. That's 43 times 10 to the 18th power. So 43 billion billion possibilities. So you can imagine that one of them is going and cycling through them. And, and given enough time, if they do like one per second, maybe eventually they'll get to the right one. So there's a very small chance that they'll just happen to land upon the right possibility. So Fred Hoyle says it's not, it's, not, it's not that unlikely. It's even more unlikely. He says, how surprised would you be if they both solved it at the exact same time? that they both just happened upon the right possibility at the exact same moment. That'd be pretty surprising, right? Fred Hoyle says that the, the fine-tuning of the universe is more surprising than that. It's as if we all have blindfolds on, and we're all solving Rubik's Cubes, and all of us at the exact same moment get it at the exact right time. Because it's not just that each value has to have the right one, but all the values have to have the right um, magnitude, and they have to have the right relation to each other. And that all happening at the exact right way is just so incredibly unlikely, he says, there must be some super intellect behind it. So you can take off your blindfolds, you can check, did you solve it? I got it. No, not quite, <laughs> not quite. Good work, guys. Well, I could see through people and Ah, so you even had some intelligence helping you, and it wasn't, wasn't it's a super intellect you need. Yeah, yeah so this is, this is Hoyle, and many others have commented on just how surprising this is, that you, the universe has just the right constants. Now, there's one response to this that's been offered in the last couple of years, it's become popular, you might have heard of. 
a couple of physicists who want to resist Fred Hoyle's conclusion that there's a superintellect have offered another possibility. What if instead of there's being you know, one cake, there are many cakes we're baking, or instead of there's being one universe, suppose there are many universes. And in each universe, the laws of physics are slightly different. The constants are slightly different. Well, if you have enough universes, like infinitely many, then I wouldn't be surprising that one of them gets just right. So it's like the idea, if you buy a lotto ticket and you win, that's surprising. But if you buy a billion lotto tickets or like an infinite number of lotto tickets, it's, you know, you expect to win. And so this is called the multiverse hypothesis, the multiverse theory. The idea that there are, there are infinitely many other universes with slightly different constants. And so one of them is bound to get it right. What's your response to this idea? Same question as the first universe, isn't it? Where did they come from? Oh, good. So if you say that there's no God, there's infinitely many universes, it's like, well, that doesn't really solve your problem. That seems like it's even more amazing. How are there infinitely many universes, right? Yeah, any other reactions? Ah, very good. So what has, this has become a big topic of debate recently, because while some have hypothesized that there are infinitely many universes to explain this, it's very difficult to see how we could ever have any kind of evidence of this, right? any kind of physical evidence. To, you know, how, how are you going to do an experiment on a different universe that's, that's causally distinct from our universe, right? So one physicist, he put it this way. This is uh, Mark Buchanan writing. Um, he wrote this article called, When Does Multiverse Speculation Cross into Fantasy? And this is, this is his critique. He says, in a sense, multiverse enthusiasts take a leap of faith, every bit as big as the leap to believing in a creator. In the end, this isn't science so much as philosophy using the language of science. And so he says, you know, to, to move to the place where you believe there are infinitely many universes with no evidence, that's a pretty big leap of faith. And some of us might say it's an even bigger leap of faith than we have in Christianity, right? Christianity fits so well with our understanding that the universe had a beginning, that it's fine-tuned for life, that we can think about it, understand it, and reason. Christianity makes so much sense of this. While this seems like you're just making up, you know, infinite number of universes, it seems quite um, fantastic in the sense of fantasy. Okay, so let's recap we began with the story that faith and science are in tension, that faith is religion is holding back scientific progress. But when we look at the history of science, we see that science rests upon philosophical assumptions that we can understand the universe, that the universe has order, that it has structure, that, that, the, that we can use these rational minds, and that these assumptions came out of the Christian worldview, and that's why science was developed, and many of the early um, modern scientists appealed to their faith, and there's an outworking of the faith to do science. And then we've seen that over the last century, findings like the beginning of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, fit very well the Christian faith. And it's really hard to explain these under a view like naturalism, where you don't have any creator God. But not only is Christianity effective at explaining science, I think Christianity offers something else. So Einstein commented in a really fantastic essay called The Real Problem is in the Hearts of Men. He comments that our problem is not with physics, but of, ethic, of ethics. He says it's easier to denature plutonium than to denature the evil spirits of man. And so what is Einstein pointing to? He's pointing to the fact that science can tell us how to do these fantastic things, 
but it doesn't give us any ethical guidance on how to use them. So we can study particles and learn about you know, physics, but then we build these nuclear bombs and, and what's to restrain us from using them, right? Or, or right now, we have this really interesting genetics going on with a technology called CRISPR, where we can edit the genome and we can edit genes. And, but but who's could, where's to be the ethical voice to tell us when should you edit the genes of a child and when should you not, right? Right now, we're developing artificial intelligence. And there's always fantastic questions about, you know, what, what are we developing and like self-driving cars? How should we program them? Um, what kind of moral thinking should we program into them? If you drive in a self-driving car and someone runs out into the road, should it save them or should it save you? It's like these moral questions come up, right? In doing science, ethical questions come up all, in medicine, right? Ethical questions are always coming up. And this is pointing back to the weakness of this original statement we saw by, um, oh, who was this first statement? Ah, Bertrand Russell, right? Bertrand Russell said the only kind of true knowledge we can have is scientific knowledge, right? But the weakness here is we need other kinds of knowledge. We need ethical guidance. We need questions about what it means to be human and how to treat humans. And so we need something more than just science. And so what I want to suggest in closing is not only does Christianity do a really good job of making sense of science, but it offers more than that. It offers us ethical guidance in how we use the science that we develop. One last thing Christianity does, and that's it gives us hope of, for the future. So we talked about how we now have understanding that the universe had a beginning. But not only does cosmology study the origins of the universe, there's quite a bit of study into the ultimate fate of the universe as well. And in cosmology, there's two pictures there's a number of different theories, but here are two popular ones. One's called the Big Crunch. The Big Crunch is the idea that the universe had a beginning, a Big Bang, right? It expanded out of there, but eventually it's going to stop expanding and then ultimately crunch back upon itself into nothingness. So the ultimate fate of the universe under the Big Crunch is we're all going to be, you know, crunched back into a singularity. Now, a big crunch was a popular idea for a while. There's some recent evidence shows that the universe is actually expanding faster and faster, so it's not going to stop expanding, but it's going to continue to expand faster and faster. And so a more common idea right now is something called the big chill or the heat death of the universe. The idea here is the universe will continue to expand more and more and more, and as it expands, everything will become distant from each other. Stars will die out. Everything will reach absolute value, absolute zero. And as the universe reaches absolute zero, there's no longer any heat differential, so there's no longer the possibility of life. Everything's absolutely cold, no heat, no life. And both of these visions of the future, the, the, the result's the same, no life, right? My question is, under these views of the future, well, it's not a very positive view for science, because whatever we might learn about the world today, ultimately that knowledge is going to be lost. Whatever we might discover about the world, all it's telling us is our ultimate fate is nothingness, right? So it's not a very positive view of the future. It leads to the question of, if we're all going to end up in nothingness, in oblivion, either from heat death or being crunched, right? Then why should, what significance does any of our lives have ultimately, right? At the end of this day, in that day where the universe reaches absolute zero, well, then, like, why does it matter if I have lived my life ethically or not? Why does any of our choices, why does it matter if humanity has discovered these great things or not, right? And so it seems to really question the whole scientific enterprise. If we know that this is where we're headed, then why does, what's the ultimate significance of everything we do? There might be temporary significance. 
you know, it seems meaningful today and gives us benefits right now. But ultimately, what is the ultimate significance of it? In contrast to this, the Christian worldview presents a very different picture. In the book Education, we're told that heaven is a school. I love this. Its field of study, the universe. Its teacher, the infinite one. A branch of the school was established in Eden, and the plan of redemption accomplished. Education will be taken up again in Eden school. This kind of sounds like Martin Luther saying we're going to we begin that task of discovering the knowledge that Adam had lost, right? So it's this vision that we're going to continue forever learning, forever studying about the universe under the, the guidance of the infinite one. It's this picture that our original purpose of being made to study and, and create in the image of God. We can continue that for eternity. And so it begins to give purpose to our lives now. The reason we go out and do science now is we're beginning this infinite task of making sense of the world around us. And what's really awesome about this ultimate Eden school is that the, the, the highest science we'll be doing there is not just studying the universe, but the science of redemption, right? How God brought us back to that state. So I want to close with a positive picture of the, of the future, that positive picture of why we should do science is, is we are created to be forever studying and learning the image of God. But I want to take a few minutes for any questions you might have. We have about 10, 15 minutes. And so if there are any questions, I want to leave it open at this point. Um, I have a question. Yeah. On the, the three things that you showed that fit into that equation. Yeah, EDI pi, yeah. Yeah, um, what is, could you just explain what the E stands for? Yeah, so E is this number, 2.71828. Um, so how do you get E? That's a, it's related to the infinite in a really cool way. So I'll, I'll do like two minutes of math geeking and then you can stop me, <laughs> right? So if you do one, to the um, uh, one power, it's just one, right? That's not very interesting. But if you do one, uh, say plus one half to the second power, it's 1.5 squared, it's 2.25. If you do one plus one tenth to the tenth power, well, you get a number that's like two point, oh, I don't know, a little bit larger. If you do one plus one over 100 to the 100th power, you get a number a little bit bigger. If you keep taking bigger and bigger numbers, one plus one over like a million to the million power, these bigger and bigger numbers, it actually comes out and starts approaching, it's closer and closer to this number E. So that's where, that's where E comes from. So is E like, yeah. like the vertical line on a, well, he's a number. It's just the number 2.71828. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of like it's, uh, it's related to the idea of exponential growth. That's right. Um, and so it has to do with like continuous growth. Yeah, it's well studied in the calculus. But it's closely related to the idea of infinity because it's kind of like you're taking one plus one over, I'm violating notation, but it's like one over infinity to the infinity power. And so it's seen like this trend of where this is going to as you approach infinity. Yeah. But the, uh, it's a really powerful idea in calculus. So let's just explain lots of things um, related to continuous change. So it's really interesting in this equation how E, this idea in the calculus, fits with I, this imaginary number, fits with this idea from geometry, and they come together in a really surprising way. Yeah. Yeah. Any questions unrelated to, to mathematical constants? <laughs> I just want to say that, you know, when you think of the fathers of um, astronomy mm. earlier, 
Yeah. You know, Newton and Kepler and all these guys that were held strongly to the Word of God and to, you know, um, the universe mm. being designed by a grand designer. Yeah. You know, and they've given us so many laws and so much information, and yet science has just totally gone to the other side. Mm. Yes, they still use much of the findings of these these early fathers. Yeah. It blows my mind. Yeah, it still rests on that foundation. And often people don't even realize the intellectual foundation is resting on. Yeah. Yeah, and but there's still, and I try to quote one or two contemporaries to point out, there still continue to be a number of scientists and top scientists who hold our Christian faith. But sometimes it's easy to get the impression um, because of a few outspoken people like Richard Dawkins or others that all scientists are against religion. And Well, that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting um, polls and surveys that give conflicting pictures, but there was a recent study that was done, um, a religious landscape study. This was out of Rice University. Um, sociologist by the name of Eklund did a study of the religious views of scientists. And she found that scientists who are atheists, one, are not atheists because of the science, rather atheists for the same reasons that everyone else is. And so it's just like, you know, just like someone who, you know, maybe had some questions about the problem of evil, which we're going to be talking about on Thursday or one of these other questions. Um, that's what ultimately describes atheism. And many of them were atheists before they became a scientist. And so it's not that the science leads to atheism. And two, she found that even um, scientists who privately would describe themselves as atheist or agnostic are critical of outspoken characters like Richard Dawkins and others who say that science leads to atheism. And so they, they don't think this is helpful. And so the majority of scientists, while they may be outspoken about it, don't, aren't outspoken saying that science leads to atheism. But there's a few that they're very loud about that and it gives an impression. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, so scientists like Richard Dawkins or Stephen Hawking, mm. and mm-hmm. we hear so much about your Goldilocks principle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do they have comments about that at all, about when people challenge them with those kind of ideas? Do they hold to the multiverse theory about that, or I just want you know, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so uh, Hawking was trying to develop something called M-theory, trying to work through these problems. Um, there are a, a number, Sean Carroll and others, who promote multiverse, um, but... Yeah, so I think multiverse is probably uh, the most common response to fine-tuning. Uh, some people just try and claim that there's nothing surprising about it. So there's something called the anthropic principle. And the idea there is, well, if the laws of the universe were not just right for life, we wouldn't be here to ask the question, right? And so therefore, it's not surprising that the laws of the universe, that the constants are just right to permit life. Um, the problem is is while that's really good at explaining why we don't live in a universe that doesn't permit life, because we couldn't, it doesn't actually solve the problem, right? It's like, suppose you were to like buy a lottery ticket and like win like three weeks in a row. And you're like, I wonder how this happened. And your friend said, well, that's a dumb question because if it hadn't happened, you would never ask that question. It's like, well, no, but it's still like, there's still something to understand there, right? Like there's um, something really surprising going on or you know, imagine like you jump out of a plane with no parachute and you land on the ground unharmed. Then you say, I wonder how that happened. And someone says, well, that's a dumb question because if you had died, you couldn't ask the question. 
well, it's true, I couldn't, but I, I didn't die and I'm alive and I want to know why I'm alive, right? There's still a question there. And so some appeal to these truisms and they just don't seem to actually um, get at the deep mystery that's there. Yeah. You asked the question in your presentation, um, mathematics has discovered equations that are only applicable a long time in the future. That's right, like non-Euclidean geometry is an example of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But isn't it possible that math is just simply easier to discover than proving those uh, so it's easier to do the math than to do the physics. Yes, than to make the physical discoveries. <laughs> well, as a mathematician, I have some thoughts on that. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think in some sense that's true. Um, but there's still something really surprising here that when mathematicians work, what's guiding us is not a desire to describe anything physical, right? At least for the pure mathematician. What's, what's guiding us is some idea of truth and some idea of beauty, right? And these are like not things found in the universe. This is, I have some abstract notion of what is truth and what is beauty. And so I'm looking for this beautiful mathematics. We all talk about elegant and beautiful mathematics. And so we're pursuing beauty and truth. And if the physicist comes along and they're like, these lofty words like beauty and truth you're talking about and develop this math actually describes the world in a really deep sense. And so that gives me some, some notion that hey, like what happened, like our brains actually are really good at getting to truth and, and not just like a truth that's like an illusion, like you would just evolve to have some sense of truth to help you survive, but actual truth, right? We can actually know truth and, and truth and beauty somehow go together. So in mathematics, there's often this um, idea that, you know, if you have this beautiful mathematical theory that might describe your physics or an uglier one, but maybe it seems to be closer to the data, keep doing experiments because eventually the, the beautiful equation is going to win out. And so somehow it's like the beautiful equations are always the ones to describe the universe if you keep out long enough. So yeah, there's something, there's something profound going on there. And, and, and as a Christian, I'm like, that makes so much sense because, you know, God gives us an aesthetic sense. God gives us the sense of beauty that God himself, who is the good, the beauty, and the true, making us in his image, implants that in us, right? I find it significant that Genesis um, Genesis actually comments that God made beautiful trees for our enjoyment. So like, God actually values beauty and seems to have built this into. And so I think as a Christian, I can begin to say the beauty is more than just a nice poetic word. There's some substance to it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So sometimes... Um, and for much, much of history, I would say that it was physical problems that was promoting the mathematics. It was around the 1800s when you have a shift. And so beginning, especially in the 1800s, mathematicians just start doing crazy things that are totally detached from reality, or they thought were totally detached from reality. But then by the time we get to the 1900s, the physicists are like, oh, actually, that's the stuff we need to describe, you know, um, these like groups and these like um, various spaces you're coming up with describe very well these, these interactions. And so there was a shift around the 1800s. Yeah. Cool. Well, if there's no further questions, I'm going to have us close with a word of prayer. Yeah, Father God, as we just um, have taken a moment to step back and, and just look at your creative work in the universe, it's hard not to be in awe of you, to recognize that you're a God who's true and beautiful, those fingerprints of your design all over the world around us. 
So we just want to glorify you, Father, in whatever we do. I'm just like those scientists who said that um, through their work, they're glorifying you. We too want to glorify you as we go out into the world and fulfill this creation mandate, having been made in your image to now go out and participate in creation. Father, for our friends who um, have questions about you and have a tougher time believing some of these things, we just pray that you might continue to um, let us live lives that are so beautiful and attractive. It will draw them to a knowledge of you as well. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.